With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. Yes, despite some new intro music, you are in the right place. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, what is up in your world? Well, first of all, I am really pumped up after that new intro music. I think uh, Salty Pretzels knocked it out of the park. Yeah, he is phenomenal. He's incredible. Like When we were working with him the first time around, I was just blown away by his talent and musicianship. Yeah, he is far higher on the music talent spectrum than I am. Wow, that's high praise. Yeah, uh, I know nothing about music, so I can only say that that intro is sweet. That's a lie, man. You sing really well. Oh, thank you, buddy. Um, uh, Otherwise, in terms of magic, I have been playing a ton of Amonkhet Remastered. I think this is the longest stretch I've ever played once hitting Mythic. Wow. Yeah. So Amonkhet holds up, it delivers? It really does. Like, I think it's got the same, like, best of one feel bads that best of one does. There's a lot of sweepers, which I think sort of add to those feel bads because you can just never play around them and then you just get got by them. But otherwise, I think it's pretty dang good. It is fast, but the tools are there to combat aggro. I have not found that, like, it's just red, white beats, green, white beats all the time. Like, you can do sweet stuff, you can build around things. I do think the format's pretty balanced. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. Towards the end, I initially started on the red, white, green, white train. And towards the end, I've done probably about 15 drafts at this point. Towards the end, I was coming around to you don't always have to play aggro, you know, especially if you're black and you've got some black cartouches and splendid agonies. I think the tools, like you said, are definitely there. Yeah, for sure. How about you? Have you uh, been able to play any magic this week? I have been doing some Amonkhet remaster drafts. I jammed a ton last weekend uh, in preparation, trying to learn the format for my CFB vid. And then I have not played since I made my CFB vid on Monday, which is really unusual for me. But I was pouring my heart and soul into my first article for CFB Pro. Yeah, both of us now, as of this recording, have released our first two articles there on the pro side. Uh, They've both been received very well. I'm really proud of my piece. I know you're really proud of yours, and as well you should be. It's an awesome article. Those are both over on Channel Fireball on the pro side. If you're interested in signing up over there, please consider using the code LOL as CFB is sponsoring this podcast for us. That lets them know that this relationship is worthwhile. We're super stoked to be a part of the CFB family. Yeah, and I would say, I don't know how you feel about your article, and I I don't normally like toot my own horn. I feel fairly confident that this one article would be worth your $5 for a month. I'm really, really proud of my article. Yeah, it's a really strong piece. Do you want to give people a little uh, little teaser about it? Yeah. So my first episode of LR was Quadrant Theory, um, and it made a huge impression on me. And I wanted to try to give a similarly impactful piece to the Magic the Gathering community. So called it Synergy Theory. And I attempt to break down Synergy um, in four quadrants of synergy. And I think I did a pretty darn good job. Like synergy is pretty nebulous. And I think it's, you know, a really hard concept to teach other people. And I think I gave people a framework to evaluate how synergistic a card is and a, and a test. And so you can see how cards don't perform well on the quadrant theory test and maybe do perform well on the synergy theory test and then are good cards in the format as a result. It's, it's really cool. 
Yeah, another thing cooking over at CFB aside from our content is this new promo, You Box It, We Buy It, which I actually talked about on stream a little bit this week. I am going to send off a bunch of my rares from the GPs I've played in the past few years, make some sweet, sweet dough, and you too can do this. Um, You can just like take any rares you have lying around. If you're a limited player, you don't care about uh, collection like I do. Uh, You can just send it off to them and they will assess it and like quote it for you and you can do your 30% store credit bonus or just get cold hard cash money back and if you don't like the quote and you don't want to get the money or the 30 percent, then they just send the cards back to you free of charge it's a really unique awesome thing that they're doing for uh for folks i don't think there's anything else out there like it yeah it's really cool i think if i were going to sell magic cards this would be the thing that would get me to do it because i am a lazy boy <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is this is right up your alley i think it's uh seems to be pretty good for for a lazy person like me and getting rid of cards. Uh, the last thing we want to talk about, of course, is the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited. It's where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. Anyone who gives back to the show gets access to the Discord, and the Discord got a huge facelift this week. And so far, knock on wood, I think we may have struck the right balance in terms of catering it best to all of our users. Uh, we made like sections for each and every different draft format that's available right now. And so people can pick and choose which formats they want to opt into and like mute others. So if you're not playing on Arena, then you don't need to worry about Omnicat remastered. Likewise, if you're not playing on Magic Online, then maybe you don't care about Double Masters. Like I think it's actually pretty streamlined right now, so I'm hoping that that's going to be the the way we do things moving forward. Yeah, it looks great. And uh, of course, we want to welcome each and every one of our new patrons the week that they join. And this week, we are welcoming Dan, Seth, Juka, Peter, Tim, Thomas, Jake, Sean, Nick, and Jeff. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. And again, as I say every week, you know, I'm busy working now that the school year started up and the Discord really does keep me in touch with Magic and what's going on in the format. It's great when I have five minutes, you know, in between periods or during lunch or whatever to be able to pop into the Discord and hop on in and check out what's the pick, what's the build. Just keeps me in touch with what's going on. Yeah, for sure. All right, Ben, this uh, episode, I think, has the potential to be pretty great. I'm staring at uh, six pages chalk full of show notes here. <laughs> yeah, there's some serious level of goodness coming your way. What do we got going on today? Yeah, we're going to talk about pick orders, tier lists, common rankings, and why they're important and how to employ them to get the most use out of them correctly. Yeah, so I, I think to start us off here, in the school of limited magic, this is your homework, right? Pick orders, tier lists, common rankings, reviewing cards, pouring over the spoiler, thinking about archetypes and how individual cards will perform in the context of the set is what will lead you to having a leg up early on the competition and come closer to quote unquote solving the format. Like, you know, we've had some pros. We've had the privilege of talking to a number of pros on the podcast, Andrew Cuneo, Ari Lax, Sam Black. These folks, I feel like, are not the norm. These are the exception to the rule, the folks that don't need to look at the spoilers, that can just dive into a format and solve it as they draft it or figure it out as they draft it. I I am not that way. I don't think you are that way, Ben. I think you and I benefit a lot from what we're going to outline and why pick orders and tier lists are so important. Yeah, I agree. I went into Double Masters blind and it felt weird. <laughs> it's the first time in several years I had not not looked over a spoiler and I think you can still figure it out, but I think it certainly takes a while longer. It takes your first few drafts I think to get your feet in and if you don't care about your win rate right away at the beginning of the format, it's certainly a different type of experience, but I think if you're trying to get a leg up from the get-go, pouring over the spoilers is the way to go. Yeah. I think it's really important that you actually force yourself 
to do this because I think it's very easy to say, oh yeah, I've got, I've got a common rankings. I've got, I've got a pick order. I've got tier list, whatever. I, I've got it in my head. I've done, I've done that. But if you haven't actually taken the time to, to rank the cards, to put pen to paper or, you know, clacks to your keyboard to rank commons, <laughs> then, <laughs> then you're not really doing the work. Forcing yourself to actually rate cards next to each other, think about how they match up against each other. When you make those tier lists prior to drafting, you're, you're already sort of doing the work so that when pick five comes along and you're weighing some options, you've done this already. You, you already know what the checks and balances are for which of these two cards you should take based on what you've drafted already. Yeah, I agree for sure. And I think, you know, it's harder than you think once you sit down and start putting it on paper. And I think the biggest distinction, you know, if we're talking about the LR grading scale is going to be between B minuses and C pluses. So B minus is where a card starts to pull you into its color. So for example, in the context of M21, thinking about which of those top green commons is a C plus and which is a B minus. A lot of times the top commons don't even all necessarily push into B minus territory. So Drowsing Tranodon and I think Llanowar Visionary even pulls me into green. I think Tranodon, probably a B visionary, a B minus at this point. And then I think Hunter's Edge doesn't quite pull me across that line into green. I think Hunter's Edge is still firmly in the C plus territory. Yeah, I think so. And th- those differences are are huge, I think. And we'll talk about how you apply those gradings or that information or those like tiebreaker things a little bit down the road here. But having tier lists and and grading cards yourself helps you to see a lot of stuff. You can see redundancy in a color. You can see that there are interchangeable two drops. You can see that there are multiple combat tricks. You can see that there are good blockers. Like these can all sort of clue you into what a color or color pair or a color's identity is in the format before you even get your hands on the cards. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, back to the Sam Black episode, one of the things he was talking about doing is even going a step further and laying out the archetypes. And then you can see all of those same things in the archetypes as well, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're laying out, you know, all the two drops in blue, white at common, and you can see which ones you need to start to prioritize. So let's talk about the common rankings. This is something we started doing when we implemented our crash course style shows, right? And you and I will come to the episode each having our own ideas of what the top three commons in each color is and maybe a a top five-ish common rankings overall. What what is the importance of that for you? Well, first of all, sick brag rights (laughs) (laughs) about which of us nails the top commons more. But more importantly, I think it starts to give you a framework for what you personally expect from the format. Like, so for example, I had in Ikoria Snare Tactician in my top three commons, but I didn't have it as the number one common. So I was expecting cycling to be good, but I don't think certainly to the extent that it was. And then immediately after playing the format for a week, both your and my top commons usually shift. I mean, it's rare that we get it right on the first crack. Mm -hmm. But after that, we're generally pretty much in alignment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll come come at the episode with some different ideas, some maybe hot takes, and then and then we'll we'll sort of meet in the middle at some point later in the week. The reason this is so important and the reason we focus on the commons so much is because that's such a huge portion of the limited landscape that you're going to see draft in and draft out. So if, the more you can understand that to its fullest extent the more advantage you're going to have in the draft. Absolutely. And I think also knowing what the best commons are in each color or the best commons overall in the format, like the top five commons, let's say, it helps you read signals. If you're sitting down to an M21 draft and you don't know that Bosrys Acolyte's the best white common and that you're seeing it sixth, 
you might be missing a huge signal that White's open if you don't value Basri's acolyte as highly as the rest of the world does. Right. If you're, for whatever reason, still thinking that Swift Response is good because it's a removal spell, then you're going to be out of whack with the rest of the world. So you you sort of have to keep a finger on the pulse of where the limited metagame is shifting and settling. And that's why the first two or three days of drafts are so wild, right? Because everyone has different pick orders. Yes. And so it's it's before the, the magic community has congealed on a consensus of, okay, these are what the signal cards are at common. I think conversely, on stream a lot, I'll hear people say, you know, it's whatever, it's pick six, pick seven. Oh, red looks open. So what my immediate reaction is when I hear that is I do my checklist. I go, okay, what are my top three red commons in Amonkhet Remastered? And I have them as Magma Spray, Open Fire, Kenra Scrapper. And have I seen any of those cards? And if I haven't, I don't think that color is open. I don't know what we're basing that off of. Like, sure, you know, colors can be deep, especially in, you know, a set like Double Masters or Amonkhet Remastered, these more curated limited formats. But that doesn't necessarily mean that a color is open. I think you want to have reasons to think about colors are open. And that's coming from the power of, you know, rares, uncommons and those top commons. Well, and I think you can even go further than that into, you know, a lot of times commons four through six are commons that are very good in a specific archetype. So, for example, in M21, if you see a late Spellgorger Weird or a late Goblin Wizardry, you don't necessarily know that red as a color per se is open, but you might be able to, you know, deduce from that that blue-red spells is not being drafted by your next few neighbors or black-red spells or that some sort of a red-based caring about non-creature spells deck is available to you in your seat, but not necessarily that the color red is open. Right. So there's a lot that you can glean from understanding the layout of the commons in the format in relation to cards at higher rarity and archetypes in the format. What, what are some things that you can gain from that? I think, first of all, just knowing if a card is worth building around or able to be supported at common. So like, let's say you see this sweet build around uncommon, like in the case of M21, let's talk about Teferi's Tutelage. Like, first thing I would want to know is how many ways are there a common to draw cards and are there enough to make this a viable win condition? And I think the answer is yes, there's a whole color pair, green, blue, that cares about drawing cards. There's opt at common, there's crash through at common, there's rousing read at common that lets you draw two cards. Drawing cards is a thing that is seated fairly heavily into the commons. And if that weren't the case, you know, you can see right off the bat, eh, Teferi's Tutelage probably isn't a build around that's necessarily going to get there. Yeah. Knowing all the commons will let you know if you want to splash a card, what the fixing is like, how likely you are to get it, how likely you are to be able to splash. Like if it's pack three, pick one, and you see a bomb, are you going to be seeing fixing in the next seven picks to support taking that? And if not, you probably can't do it. So just knowing the density of mana fixing, essentially. If there's a lot, great, you can probably afford a splash. If there's not, meh you might be wanting to reconsider. Another thing you can glean from the format based on, you know, common pick order rankings is how fast or slow you would expect the format to be. And just thinking about how those commons work. Are they control cards? Is the removal great? Are the cards aggressively slanted? Do they want to attack? So if you think about Amonkhet Remastered, you know, looking at the top commons there, Gustwalker, best white common, you know, really wants to attack, really wants to exert. And most of the top white commons similarly have that exert mechanic and want to attack. Moving over to red, you've got premium removal spells and Kenra Scrapper, which wants to attack and exert. Thinking about green, you know, you've got green cartouche that pumps your creature up. You've got hooded brawler that wants to attack and exert. Really, the only colors that are not super aggressive are black with some premium removal spells 
And blue kind of, I think, is even on the aggressive plan a little bit. I think I've still got blue cartouche as my top blue common. Where are you at there? I do as well. I'm followed, cl- not closely, but followed behind by Spellweaver Eternal. I have that over blue desert now. Just, just giving a nod to the commons broadly support an aggressive strategy. And so that's my default in the format. But I do think if you open powerful stuff, you know, you open a sweeper, you open approach of the second suns, whatever, then I know that the tools are there at common to support those kinds of cards. But if I'm not seeing the power there, I'm not going to take like Oasis Ritualist first and hope I find some stuff to ramp or splash for, you know? Right. Absolutely. So what do the top commons tell us about a format? Well, they show us the most supported archetypes by way of showing us the deepest colors, right? You know, white, red, and green in M21 are pretty deep at common. White especially runs super deep. And so that lets you know that like you can get into that deck more often than not. And that almost all of those cards, you know, usually white has some sort of identity crisis of like half the cards are controlling, half the cards are aggressive. It doesn't really have that in M21. They're all pretty darn focused on curving out and beating down. And I think when you lay those out and you understand like, all right, well, I'm seeing Feet of Resistance as a really awesome combat trick and sort of a, a catch-all combat trick. I'm seeing Bosri's Acolyte. I'm seeing these like really good two drops. I'm seeing this plus one plus one counter stuff. All of that clues you in to what white's role in that format is. So essentially knowing what those deepest colors are in M21, as you mentioned, they're the Naya colors. If you don't get one of those bombs or build around rares or busted uncommons that's going to point you in a different direction than the norm, you know to end up in the best deck possible, you should probably head down the Naya aggressive route. And one of the other things that really does for you is just let you know what that safety valve is. I think, you know, we started doing this, you know, where we were identifying what the decks push you towards at common. We haven't been doing that for the entire life of our show. And I think coming back to Amonkhet Remastered, I really felt a little lost in that way, like trying to remember what was the best color? What did each color do really well? And it was a little different because it was a slightly new format also, right? So I think just having that picture of here are the commons, here are the decks the commons lead towards, and just knowing that you're probably going to end up in those style of decks more of the time is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. The, the top commons, as we talked about before, they let you know about format speed, they let you know about what build arounds are most supported at higher rarities? Like, what are you likely to see? Maybe you also see some stuff like in terms of not, you know, the one or two best common in a color, but four through six, maybe those are more support cards for certain types of build arounds. Most importantly for me, the top commons help you read signals. They are signals to a color being open. I really feel like my first big epiphany of this was, this is weird because I feel like Blade Juggler was one of, if not the best common in Ravnica Allegiance, but it took me, a few drafts of seeing Blade Juggler pick six, pick five, pick six, and then seeing a really good Rakdos deck pass me by before I was like, okay, Blade Juggler is a signal to black being open. I need to be checking that off and moving into it for that reason. Right. And similarly to, you know, along those lines, Ben S talks about drafting the hard way all the time. If you don't know what the top commons are, you're not going to be able to draft the hard way because you're going to be missing those key identifying signals at common to let you know, hey, maybe I should consider abandoning my blue green start and try to pivot into blue red because I'm seeing, you know, I saw one pretty good red common go by and now I'm seeing the top red common here fourth pick. And maybe I passed on that, but now I see the second best red common fifth pick. And, you know, it's looking like if I go down the red route, I'm likely to get paid off for the rest of the draft. If you don't know 
what those top commons are and you don't agree with the other people around you, it's going to be a lot more difficult to draft the hard way. Yeah. And the last point here is that I think the top commons let you know about the power level of a format. You know, if we think about, we sort of talk, talk about sets in, in the context of Prince versus Pauper, like, is it a format dictated by commons or is it a format dictated by like uncommons and rares? And Dominaria coming back to Arena a few weeks ago, um, thinking about Theros Beyond Death, those are pretty princely formats. Those are formats where like the power level gaps are pretty huge between the best cards and then the second tier cards. Whereas I think formats like M21 or Amonkhet Remastered are largely dictated by the commons. Like there's really good removal, cheap interaction, aggressive decks are very viable, um, and it's less about, sure, the bombs are good when you get them, but just understanding like where your draft is going to navigate, you know, going into Theros Beyond Death and being like, look, I'm just really trying to maximize the most powerful cards that I draft. I'm not really trying to draft this like curve out beatdown deck because there are these huge powerful bombs, even at uncommon, that I want to make sure that I have the opportunity to put in my deck. Looking at you, Farika Spawn. I'm so so glad I never have to play with that card again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're sort of talking about things in the abstract. I want to really hone in on how we apply pick orders in the context of a draft, Ben. Yeah, so I think having a deck in mind while you're drafting is incredibly important, right? You want to know when you sit down generally what you would expect a red-white deck to look in in a given format. And let's just say, you know, M- M21, for example. Mm-hmm. You know that you want to end up with a low-to-the-ground beatdown deck that cares about dogs and hopefully has, you know, a couple Alpine Hound Masters in the deck. Right. Or let's say I, I had a draft of Amakari Mastered recently where I opened Sweltering Suns, pack one, pick one. And so that's a three mana deal three to all creatures spell with cycling. And as early as pack one, pick one, that is a card if I'm interested in maximizing that, which I think I am because I think sweepers are very good in best of one. And with all these small creatures running around, that's a card I'm interested in maximizing. And that's going to immediately throw my red common pick order out the window a little bit. If I want to draft a more defensive deck, then I don't want those low to the ground exert creatures, perhaps. Maybe I don't want Kenra Scrapper or Nefcrop Entangler. Maybe I want some stuff that can survive being dealt three damage, you know? And I think if you the the more powerful of a card that you start off with, the more you're going to try to stick to that color. So, you know, you're going to take hits and power from your picks in order to be able to play your rare. And so having a pick order list and knowing how cards stack up against each other will let you make those type of decisions with confidence. So let's say you start your M21 draft with a Sublime Epiphany, blue, four blue, blue, bomb rare, that really wants to go in a controlling deck. And next pack, you've got a decision between Roman Ghost Light and Feet of Resistance as the best cards. Feet of Resistance is a better card in a vacuum in the format than Roman Ghost Light. I think that's true, would you say? I would agree. So knowing that is important. And knowing how big the gap is, is also important. Like there's a noticeable gap there, but it's not huge, right? Roman Ghost Light's a good card. And I think in this instance is good enough that I'm willing to pick it over Feet of Resistance to be able to stay blue for Sublime Epiphany. But then all of a sudden, if you turn that into something like Rousing Reed, it starts to get a little dicier. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you still pick the Rousing Reed. That one's really close for me. And then if it's something like Opt versus Feet of Resistance, which I think most people have as the third best blue common, I, I'm I'm out. I want to take the Feet of Resistance, right? But you have to have clear rankings of all those cards in your head to be able to make those types of decisions in the heat of the moment in the draft. Yeah, this is the core of drafting pack one for me. And it really like solidified in writing my Channel Fireball article and in uh, talking about this on stream this week that like in each pack 
or for each pick, I'm identifying two cards after pack one, pick one. I'm identifying the card in the pack that I believe is the most powerful in a vacuum. Like I just treat it like, what if this were pack one, pick one, what would I take? And then I identify the card in the pack that lines up the best with what I've already drafted. Now, if that's the same card, right? Like in the example of, you know, let's say you take a good white card first in Omniket Remastered, and then you follow it up and Gust Walker's in the pack. Well, that's probably going to be the best card in the pack, period. Not only to go with your white card, but just in a vacuum. But then it gets a little tricky when those two cards are different. When I think the best card in the pack in a vacuum is different from the card that goes best with what I've already drafted. And then I have to weigh the delta between those two cards. In the example of Ghostlight versus Feet of Resistance, I think Feet of Resistance is probably a gradation or two better than Ghostlight, right? Maybe Feet's a B minus and Ghostlight's just a, a C, maybe a C plus. So that delta isn't that huge. But when I'm talking about, you know, a C card versus a B card, and the B card isn't in my color or doesn't go with what I've drafted so far, I probably still should take the card that I believe is a B because it's just intrinsically more powerful. Right. And the other thing you've got here is that you're when you're checking the delta between those two cards is how many of your picks you're potentially giving up to take the more powerful card, right? The deeper you get into the draft, the harder it is to take the card of the different color, right? Right. So like, you know, if you're drafting blue red spells and then pick six, you get an obelisk spider and Amonkhet, I'm probably just going to take a flyer on it depending on what's in the pack. Like, let's say there's just a bunch of C minus blue and red cards. Like then it's like, well, I'm not giving up on much by taking the spider and not grabbing a card for the blue red deck in the whatever 5%, 10% chance that this spider is a huge signal that black green is open for me. But you have to weigh that in terms of what you're giving up in the pack as well. Right. So you're looking at opportunity cost. Like, and you wouldn't be taking that flyer on obelisk spider if there was even something like an op. I think if you're in blue red spells and you've got a good blue red, it also depends on how good your start is, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. Do you have do you have a nuts blue red start? You're going to take opt and just stick with your guns. If you have a mediocre blue red start and there's nothing great in the pack, sure you can take obelisk spider, but you have you have to weigh what the what the delta is between those cards and what you're potentially giving up. And I think the other thing that you're trying to weigh, and this is where you know drafting the hard way comes in from Ben S. The other thing you're trying to weigh is if you take that card there. Let's use something other than obelisk spider as an example. Let's say you see a pick six grasp of darkness you know that that starts to get really interesting right because most people at this point know that black is the weakest color but that's a very powerful card you're also trying to factor in the future benefit of getting cards the quality of grasp of darkness pick six in a pack and that's got a lot of implied future equity as well right that's the that's the core tenets of drafting the hard way but again to be able to do that you've got to have these rankings of your common pick orders solidified for that to work. Yeah. And, you know, the more you start a draft with powerful cards, the less likely you are to deviate from them, you know, with the example of starting with Sublime Epiphany. But if I'm just starting off with, you know, some commons and then I see a powerful card that I believe is a signal for a deck or a linchpin for a deck, then I'm probably going to be more likely to abandon ship or more likely to, as we say, take a flyer on that card as late as, you know, whatever, pick six, pick seven. The next thing we have here is once you have an idea of the kind of deck you're drafting, like we talked about with that pack one, pick one sweltering suns decision, your, your pick orders are going to come to bear here in a different way, right? You want to start to evaluate how the cards are going to fit in to this deck? What kind of deck are you drafting? So if we think about in Amonkhet Remastered, Ronus is stalwart, the two mana two two in green that has exert and it gets plus one plus one and can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less. And Oasis Ritualist, the four mana two four that can uh, tap to add a mana of any color. These are two fairly strong green commons, I would say, but they just belong in very different decks. 
So the more you lean into an aggro green X deck versus a green whatever splish splash deck like green, blue, green, black, the more you will 100% want one of those cards and you're close to 0% to want the other, right? Like so Feral Prowler as a two mana one, three when it dies draw card goes well with the ramp card, right? Because you want to be in a more controlling deck, but it doesn't go well in a deck that wants the stalwart and wants to curve out, beat down, take advantage of the exert creatures. So understanding how the cards work in the context of an archetype or even in a flavor of a color will help immensely when you're figuring out your picks. And a lot of times those are commons four, five, six, seven, eight, because what makes those top commons great is that usually they go in every archetype of that yes. color or they're so busted in one or two of the archetypes, you know, that they're, that they're that powerful in those decks and those are the best decks in the format or whatever. But generally, you know, that's why open fire is a great card because you're going to put it in every single red deck. And then once you get into those other commons, you know, you're starting to identify, okay, I want this common when I'm this color pair, or I want this common when I'm controlling and I want this common when I'm aggressive. Yeah, yeah, I think like putting your deck on that spectrum of aggro to control whatever as early as, you know, as I'm we keep saying as early as pack one pick one, starting to think about where you envision your deck going is going to help you to then figure out which of those commons, you know, even three, four, five, six, seven are the ones that you want to prioritize versus the ones you don't. I think ranking those commons can also help you reveal hidden or maybe even underrated or underdrafted strategies. So can you exploit knowing that certain cards are going to be going late or a certain color being super deep? But then, you know, as part of that color's deepness, many of its commons want to go in a certain archetype or a certain style of deck. So what comes to me here for red in M21 is the Goblin Wizardry deck, right? Mm -hmm. None of those cards, Goblin Wizardry, Crash Through, or Burn Bright, are top commons in red. But they're all self-contained within red, and if you're getting those cards late, that is its own archetype that you can build in M21. I also think the like Death Touch Ping deck with Alchemist Gift goblin arsonist and skeleton archer those are all commons that go fairly late as well that can reveal a like back door for you if a draft isn't going well another thing that is very near and dear to my heart and directly ties into my cfb article is that ranking commons can reveal glue or flex cards to you so thinking about chromatic star in double masters or forbidden friendship in ikoria is forbidden friendship better than all the red commons no but it's likely to make your deck a hundred percent of the time if you're not a cycling deck and is guaranteed to make many other cards better, which is a concept that you've written an article about for Cardsphere called Investing in the Future of Your Draft. And it is a phenomenal article. Would highly recommend you checking out if you have not. So Forbidden Friendship is great in Red Black Go Wide. It's good in the backdoor red white, you know, mutate deck that was not cycling. You know, if you really got pushed out of cycling, red green mutate, blue red spells mutate. It pairs really well with Cloud Piercer in its own color. And so finding those cards that play well with a lot of other good cards in the set is really key on, you know, improving those those pick orders that you've got and moving them up in your pick order like forbidden friendship at the start of icoria i didn't care about it at all like I, right. I didn't know that it was good and then after playing the format for two weeks it just kept slowly creeping up and up and up in my pick order ranking until it was like probably the fourth best red common fifth best red common i don't know but it was way up there by the end of the format just because of how many other cards it made around it much better yeah i remember thinking like this card is so bad it's replaceable and then i was first picking it by the end of the format and not mad about it because i just knew that it was if i'm gonna end up in red this is going to be a good card 
It's just going to make so many future picks better for me. And you knew that you wanted to end up in red, right? So it was great to right. start in like you knew that red was the best color. So it was great to and you know, red's the best color because it's deep because you've been through all the commons and you can look how powerful they all are. I mean, it was laughable how good red's commons were in comparison to the other colors in Ikoria. Yeah, absolutely. I think the flip side of this again is that this can help you identify cards that look powerful, but don't play well in the format. So I think Swift Response and M21 is a great example of this, right? This is intrinsically a powerful card in a vacuum. One in a white, instant destroy target tapped creature. That's really powerful. But white doesn't care about that, right? It's not among the top white commons. White wants to attack. It wants cards that can help you push damage. And unless you're in a racing situation, which you want to be in white, definitely, but you don't often end up there, or you may not end up there if you're doing your correct job of being the beatdown, then your opponent may not be attacking and tapping their creatures, in which case switch response is a dead card for you. Yeah, 100%. And I think the other thing that's really cool about this is knowing that switch response isn't a top white common allows you to extrapolate that white is really aggressive. And it also allows you to extrapolate like maybe you open some white rare or some rare of another color and you end up pairing white with it as your secondary color. And you for whatever reason want to be in a controlling deck in M21 because you're a crazy person, you can reliably expect to get swift responses later than you should based on the power level of the card, which is another key thing to know when you're drafting as well. Right. So that goes back to the like, how how can I exploit something by knowing some underrated cards? Well, you know, Switch Response, I think, is properly rated in the context of the set. But in what you're talking about, like, you know, let's say there were a white Wrath of God effect, a white sweeper in M21. If you open that, then you're like, all right, well, now I have this card that incentivizes me to be a control deck in white. And now I'm going to prioritize these Swift Responses or at least identify Swift Responses and think, well, maybe I could take a good card out of the pack and then maybe I can even wheel Swift Response. Like getting to take two cards out of a single pack in that way that are going to make your deck is very powerful. And so as we've said so far in the episode, you know, ranking those commons and understanding how they fill into the various archetypes in the format really gives you a much deeper understanding of the format. So we've said, you know, those top commons are going to determine a large percentage of what the default decks are going to look like. And then I think you once you have that down, you can even go a level deeper and because you know how those top commons interact and work in various decks, you can start to attack the format from a different level. So like the example you gave earlier with Sweltering Suns, you know that most people are going to be playing an aggressive strategy in Amonkhet Remastered. So when you first pick that Sweltering Suns, all of a sudden you can say, hey, I know this about the format because I know these are the top commons and I know people are going to be picking them and building these style of decks, especially in best of one. So I'm going to try to, when, other, when everybody's zigging, I'm going to try to zag and build these other style of decks that is built to prey on those aggro decks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially the sweepers are super powerful in best of one because you just like don't have any opportunity to play around them. So that I think bumps the power level of that sort of pick even more. Yeah. And I think if you're thinking about M21, you know, people are going to be playing two drops. They're going to be trying to beat down with them. They're going to be trying to put some short swords on them. And they're going to be trying to put some plus one plus one counters on them. And you know, if you're not one of those strategies, you're going to be playing against them. How can you combat that? And what cards need to go up for you as a result of the fact that you expect your opponents to be playing those decks? There's not really a lot talked about in terms of a limited metagame. And I think this is one of the things that like inspired us to start a podcast together really is that like there just wasn't something out there talking about like the the very like niche things that were happening or the slight shifts that we were seeing in terms of a format growing week after week after week from the amount that you and I were playing and I think it's a pretty 
cool thing to try and, you know, as you're talking about zagging when everyone's zigging, thinking about, all right, well, what tools are there to combat this style of deck and how can I get into that style of deck to, you know, attack the metagame, if you will. Right. That's, we talk about a lot of times the LR effect, right? So when LR has their episode for a week and they say that green is the best color, you, you probably shouldn't be drafting green that week. Because like, you know, thousands of other people listen to LR and are going to be thinking the same thing as you and you want to be trying to next level those people. Right. Yeah. So then like if green is overdrafted, then you you, you may be like, look, I know that this green card is the most powerful card in a pack, but I'm going to take the next level decision here and say I'm going to take a card that's slightly less powerful because I'm trying to avoid green as I anticipate it being overdrafted at the table. And that, now we're getting into pretty advanced draft strategy and you, you got to be careful with that right because right. don't want to level yourself right if you do that too hard you're just going to level yourself yeah for sure the next thing here i think is really important and it's something you're really good at doing it's something i try to be very good at doing and that's once you've got this pick order once you've made your first tier list your work is not done you need to be reevaluating the top commons frequently 100 percent. yeah this is one of my favorite things to do in the entire format so once you're reevaluating the top commons, I think, you know, we can settle in on the top few very quickly, but knowing which is fourth and fifth and sixth and which archetypes they perform best in is really, really, really important. Right. I mean, we we did an episode on like the art of card evaluation or whatever. We came up with this this vast acronym and thinking about cards in terms of like, well, looking at them based on the vanilla test, looking at them in terms of like analogs to older cards. But but the T there is the most important, and that's testing out the cards. Getting your hands on them is so important. Seeing the cards in play immediately will impact your preconceived notions of them 100% and I'm pretty guilty about not doing this on paper I just sort of do it mentally and then I talk to you or Alex and I'm like hey I've been thinking this do you feel Mm -hmm. the same and then if you think the same thing I get really excited and and that's then when I'm likely to put it to paper you know when I get somebody else that I whose opinion I really value highly to agree that's when I start to sort of lock it in officially but I'm updating my mental list you know from every single game I play versus the cards I play versus the cards my opponents play, how they match up against each other, how they interact with each other, all of those things. So for me, that top common list, and you know, we talked about this a little bit the other week, which is what sort of inspired this episode. But for me, the top common list is very much a scientific hypothesis. You know, I've put out this thing, I think X about the format based on these four or five cards being the best commons in each color. And then, you know, I put that hypothesis to the test in gameplay. I'm picking those cards highly. And, you know, if I'm winning and it's doing the things I expect it to do, okay, my hypothesis is confirmed. I'm going to keep those cards as the top commons. And if I'm losing a lot in the format and I'm losing to other commons interacting in different ways than I would have expected, my hypothesis, you know, was not correct. And I'm going to reevaluate, make a new hypothesis, new list of top commons and go back to work. Yeah, this is really important, I think. Let's say the top two commons of each color can be pretty solid. But then beyond that, and even, you know, thinking about double masters, I feel like it's pretty nebulous in terms of like, what style of deck are you drafting is going to influence which one of those commons four, five, six, you want to prioritize, right? Knowing when you would rather have an M21, Snare Spinner, Portcullis Vine, Sabretooth Mauler, like these C, C minus level commons, especially these, these commons that you'll see towards the end of a pack, 
you know, being able to, to understand, well, my deck is probably going in direction X, and that means I'd rather have Sabretooth Mauler because I've got a lot of death triggers, or I've got some sacrifice stuff, or I care about plus most one counters, or I need to make some curve considerations. So I'm going to take Portcullis Vine, or I've got some draw two stuff, so I want Portcullis Vine, or I've, you know, got other walls I want to sacrifice, whatever. Like understanding what your deck is doing and understanding how that deck is going to sh- like shake out at the end of the draft will clue you into which of those middling commons you want to take. When I even think that's true for, you know, something like Double Masters, two different people approaching the format differently, right? At the start of Double Masters, Alex was crushing everyone with Naya beatdown decks and was picking his Conclave Naturalists and blowing up artifacts and ruining everyone's fun. And you were brewing with all of the Esper artifact stuff and were having a lot of success too. And you guys probably had fairly similar pick orders, I would guess. But, you know, when faced with a choice of do I want to go down an aggro route that's trying to beat the artifact decks or do I want to go down the artifact route and try to be one of the people that's doing sweet things with artifacts you were just making a different choice and that led you to consistently get into different decks as a result and one's not right or wrong but that's that's based on how you're valuing cards in your pick orders right I think double masters is a great example of this because just tracking what we're talking about in this episode is exactly what I did with that format right I like the spoiler came out I spent an hour like sorting stuff on scryfall like looking at the commons thinking about how they interacted with cards at higher rarity realized that like this was just artifact masters and that was what I wanted to do and I was like well green's the only thing that doesn't care about artifacts so I'm gonna like I was sort of like soft avoiding green because I felt like it wasn't synergistic with the rest of the format. And then I get to talk to you and you're talking about this green, white, go wide, like preying on those artifact decks strategy and how supported it was at common. And you're talking like Ancestral Blade and Chatter of the Squirrel. And that just like really opened my eyes of like thinking about a format in terms of, yeah, so you can get these decks that are sweet with cards at higher rarity. But if you don't get that, what's the thing that you should be doing that's going to be most consistent at common? And that green-white deck is really there. And that that helped really like solidify my pick orders in terms of how I was thinking about those two colors. Right, absolutely. And that's one of the best parts about solving a format quickly. There's a very small window of time, maybe like a week, where you know that something is better than the rest of the world does for whatever reason. And when you do that, you have a huge advantage on the rest of the field. Like if you know in M21 that green white is the best deck and it's very deep at common and it's very aggressive and comes together very consistently, you're going to be winning a lot that first week before the rest of the world, you know, listens to our podcast or listens to LR or whatever, you know, sees an article by a pro that tells them, hey, this thing's really good. And it's really rewarding being able to deduce that sort of things from what you know about the commons. Right. That leads you to do stuff like, I'm fine to first pick Conclave Mentor. I'm thrilled to do it. Like, yeah, it's a gold card. You're not supposed to take gold cards first. But I really want to get into that green, white, plus and plus one counter deck. And Conclave Mentor is so busted in that deck that I want to bias myself towards that if I can, because I know that deck is so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of the 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 least talked about skills among content creators is reevaluating top commons. And I think even just championing a pick order list. I think I think we've been big proponents of that. And I do think it really helps improve you as a limited player if you're using it in the right way that we're talking about here, right? We're not talking about, you know, Frank Karsten's 100 and whatever, 80 <laughs> card tier list where each one's better than the next. And I think he does a good job of ranking those cards. But if you just go into a draft and you're blindly picking cards in the order of, you know, their power level, you're not going to end up with a good deck, right? That's not how we're advocating using for pick order lists here. We're advocating, you know, identifying cards, 
and drawing conclusions from what you know about those cards and using it to help you attack what you expect in a draft format based on what the top commons are. It's using it in the right way and understanding how to use it that's really important. Yeah, it just it all comes back to like thinking about the cards in the context of the format. I remember I, I like push back on stuff that feels so wrong. Like you remember thinking about M20 that like raise the alarm was the best white common. Yeah. <laughs> that was so hard for me to wrap my head around, you know, uh, you know, thinking about when white removal spells are bad, like pacifism not being good in a Coria because it like just didn't attack the two best really three best archetypes at all like pacifism is not good against a cycling deck it's not good against a mutate stack and it's not good against derpy mardu go wide you know it just doesn't do anything in the context of that format and that's hard for people to i think to jump on board with but if you don't do that you risk falling behind on understanding a number of things about a format right you you're going to be overrating certain cards you're going to be underrating certain cards as a result you won't be reading signals properly right once the magic community sort of like congeals or like figure stuff out together or settles on something you're going to be off of whatever people have decided and you're going to end up in non-optimal versions of archetypes based on that faulty card evaluation. And so you can just be like, well, I don't see what the big fuss about green white is. And it's like, well, you're not drafting the deck correctly. You don't have a good image in your head of what that deck looks like and what your pick order should be for that deck. Absolutely. The one that sticks out for me recently as a conversation that the two of us has had is at the beginning of M21, after that first week, I had Drowsing Tranodon in the top five commons and not Grasp of Darkness. And you were like, I don't know, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if Grasp of Darkness isn't ahead of Drowsing <laughs> Tranodon, I don't understand this format. And that's hard, right? Yeah. Like that's, Drowsing Tranodon is a much worse magic card than Grasp of Darkness, but it tells you certain things about the format. And having people that you trust, like having you, when we're struggling in formats, like when I was struggling in Dominaria, having you be able to tell me, hey, divination is a busted card in this format why did you pass it here like that's so valuable to have people in your network whose opinion you trust that you can bounce thing off of and if you don't have people like that in your area that's what we're here for that's what the discord's for it allows you to connect with hundreds of people that value magic the same way you do and ask those types of questions yeah those are like the biggest hurdles for me i think as a player is like when my experiences with the format or with cards in terms of thinking like well grasp of darkness is very powerful right like it was a common when it first was printed and then they like bumped it up to uncommon now it's back to common how is that not like so awesome how could this possibly be worse than drowsing pteranodon in the pick order of this format and then you just sort of have to like make a, a leap if you've got people that you trust like when i talk to ben or alex or ryan or you know talk with people on twitter or in discord like if it doesn't feel right but people i trust are saying it you just sort of have to try and put it into practice sometimes be like all right well i'm gonna make the conscious effort to move card x up in my pick order and card y down in my pick order and i'm gonna see what happens there right and that's then you're testing that hypothesis right all goes back to that yeah for sure so you know we, you sort of started talking about this a little bit but what tools are available for our listeners to prepare for your next draft or the next format in this way i think 17lands.com is top-notch resource um Everyone should be using this thing. It saves your draft logs for you, but it also lets you create your own tier list and compare your tier list to other people's. So for example, I can make a tier list, you can make a tier list, and it will show you, okay, I value this card as a B minus and you value it as a C plus. We've got like a half a gradation difference there. And it'll show you for each card how far apart you are from the other person. That's really cool. I love comparing my tier list to yours and Alex's. Mm -hmm. um, you can just 
grab a friend and rank cards, compare cards, talk about the format, all that sort of stuff, all those discussions are going to help make you better. That's, as I said, it's my favorite part of any format, I think, is I always like, I'm like sort of waiting with bated breath for you to enter your top commons into (laughs) our, our little spreadsheet that we make for the crash course, because that's the most valuable thing, I think. When I see how you're picturing the format in terms of the top commons versus how I'm picturing a format and then getting to discuss with you like, hey, why did you put this here? Why do you think this one's going to be number two rather than number three? What are you envisioning the white decks looking like, the blue red decks looking like? All of that stuff is such huge fodder for discussion. And you'd be surprised even if you and your buddy are just a little bit different on the rankings. It should be a really good springboard for you to have a discussion about where you're at with those cards. Right. It's the top commons, the top five commons in each color say so much about the format. And it's so it's so much more important than picking them in that order. It tells a story, right? The top commons tell a story. And being able to read that book based on what you know about the top commons is what we're talking about here. It's such a valuable skill. Yeah. I think reaching out to people who are better than you, which may be tough for you to do, but I would encourage you to do so. Magic Twitter is like an open book. Like being able to just tweet at like Ben S or LSV or whatever and say like, hey, what would you pick here? Or where are you at on this card? Am I overvaluing it? Are people undervaluing it? You're almost like whatever, nine times out of 10, maybe 10 times out of 10, you're going to get feedback from them and it's going to be good information. And I would say if you don't hear back from that person, like I remember one time tweeting at Ben S like fairly early on and he didn't tweet back at me and I felt really sad. (laughs) (laughs) I think you should just keep tweeting at that person because I think LSV and Marshall talked about this on the latest episode of LR. Like they're all busy people, right? And Twitter makes them extremely accessible and they want to engage with their community, but they also have to keep personal lives, right? So I don't think you should take it personally. I think you should just assume they're busy or whatever and try try again another day. And I also think reaching out to people, I think the less people you tag, the more likely you are to get a response. Like, I don't think you and I are anywhere near the level of celebrity that those people are. Not at all. But if if I'm tagged in a tweet with like 10 people, I'm not interested in responding nearly as much as if one person reaches out and just tags me for my opinion. Almost 100% of the time, I am going to respond to that person. Yeah, if it's just me in the tag, yeah, I just feel completely responsible to respond. But if it's me and like six other people, I'm like, I'm sure someone else has had it. We'll get this one. You know, I'll get the next right. one or whatever. And I think the last thing here would just be to find a larger community. So, you know, go to FNM, you know, once it's safe to go back to FNMs or get on subreddit or, you know, join the Lords of Luna Discord, you know, pledge on Patreon, get in our community. I think it's the amount of money you're spending per month. It is by far the best resource on the internet. I think that's true. So to just kind of wrap things up here, we're going to put some of this into practice going into a draft log that I've got from Amonkhet Remastered. So as we do here on Lords of Unlimited, would you like to take a seat at the round table, Ethan? I would love to. So pack one, pick one. You've got a choice between the following cards. There's Fetid Pools at Rare. That's the blue-black dual land. Your Uncommons, Vizier of Tumbling Sands. That's two and a blue for the one three that you can tap to untap target permanent. And you can pay one and a blue to cycle it. And when you do, you can untap target permanent. River Hoopoo, blue-green for the one three flyer. And you can pay three blue-green to draw a card and gain two life. Gustwalker, one and a white for the two two. And whenever it attacks, you can exert it. If you do, it gets plus one, plus one and flying. Kenra Scrapper, two and a red for the two three. Uh, it's got Menace. And when you exert it, it gets plus two, plus oh until end of turn. And Oasis Ritualist, three and a green for the two four, taps to add a color of any color to your mana pool. And when you exert it, it adds two mana of that color to your mana pool. Well, Ben, I've done my homework. I have my tier list. I've, I even have a lot of experience with the format. I believe the format is, you know, m- more often than not, I'm not seeing any bomb here, right, that I want to deviate from the Naya aggro or just 
in general aggro plan. So I think I'm going to take what I believe to be the best common in the format, and that is Gustwalker. Yeah, that's what I landed on there as well for the same reasons. And I think if you get a rare in here that's not Gustwalker, like let's say you get a Wrath of God, that makes it a lot more interesting, right? Where are you at on Wrath of God versus Gustwalker? I think I would take Wrath of God. I, I find that sweepers are really broken in this format. Um, and it's tough because, again, like thinking about Sweltering Suns in the context of red, like white does want to be aggressive, but white has the tools to be a more defensive deck as well, right? And maybe now I'm thinking about, well, I don't want to take Gustwalkers and Oketra's Avengers and, and Cartouches. Maybe I want to take, you know, Deserts highly. I want to take Anointed Priests highly, though, the one three that has Embalm and gains you life when you get tokens entering the battlefield. Like it just sort of starts to skew my pick order a little bit, but I have an image in my mind about what I'm going to be doing to maximize Wrath of God, right? Absolutely. All right. So we've slammed Gustwalker, pack one, pick one. Moving on to pack one, pick two. See the following cards as options. There's a Puncturing Blow as the best red card in the back. Two red red for a sorcery. Deals five damage to target creature. If that creature would die this turn, exile it instead. Best blue card in the pack. Cartouche of Knowledge. One and a blue for the common aura. Enchant creature you control when it ETBs. Enchanted creature gets plus one plus one as flying. Best white card in the pack is Vizier of Deferment at Uncommon. Two and a white for a 2-2 with flash. When it ETBs, you can exile target creature if it attacked or blocked this turn. Return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control at the beginning of the next end step. And there's also a lay claim here. Five blue blue for an aura enchant permanent. You control enchanted permanent and has cycling two. All right, so if we're going to employ what I think you should be doing, which is identifying those two cards, right? What is the most intrinsically powerful card in the pack? And what is the card that goes best with what we've got already, which is Gustwalker. I think the best card in the pack is Cartouche of Knowledge. I have it as the best blue common if I'm drafting an aggressive deck. So I think that's the best card. And then what goes best with Gustwalker? Well, probably the, the white card, Vizier of Deferment, except that Vizier of Deferment is, is a bit more of a defensive card, right? Getting to blow someone out in combat if you like go to block, they use a combat trick and then you use Vizier to you know blink their creature until end of turn or exile their creature until end of turn to sort of blow them out with that trick. Vizier isn't that good you know it can like unexert a creature or whatever so it can pair with Gustwalker, but doesn't really go with it in my mind if i'm thinking about what i want my aggro white decks to look like they don't often include vizier so i think i'm just gonna say i'm gonna take what i think the best card in the pack is in cartouche of knowledge so i'm gonna throw another curveball at you here what what white card would it take for you to stay what's the worst white card that it would take for you to stay on track here with Gustwalker? would you take oketra's avenger over cartouche of knowledge i would take oketra's avenger i would take white cartouche I think White Cartouche is probably the worst card. What about what about Binding Mummy? No, because I think Binding Mummy is like a secret white, black, gold card. And so if I'm taking a card that I think pulls me into a second color, which I think Binding Mummy basically does, I might as well just take what I think is a more powerful card in the blue cartouche. Yeah, I think. And so knowing those things and see, I can fire that question at you and you've immediately got an answer because you've thought about all of it, right? Right. And, and that's what making those top common orders, you have to put a lot of thought and consideration into it as well for the reasons behind why you're doing it. That's why it's such a good exercise. All right. So we slammed a blue cartouche here. That's what I took as well. So we've got Gustwalker and a blue cartouche in our pile. Moving on to pack one, pick three. Got a bit of a stinker of a pack here. You see the following cards as options. Best red card is probably the red desert, Desert of the Fervent, uh, cycles for one and a red and ETBs tapped. The fact that you're pointing out red desert here makes me want to say something about the deserts in general is that these can be your first picks of a color, right? 
taking a red desert as your first red card is not a bad idea. Oh, 100%. But I don't think people are doing that. I think people think that's weird. Yeah, that was, a, I, I thought that was weird the first time around. When we were talking about, like, in the first time around, when Hour of Devastation came around, and you were talking about, we, we essentially landed on the deserts being, like, the second best common of most of the colors. Right. And that that was a pull into a color was very strange for me and took a while for me to adapt to that. Yeah, so if, you, if you're not doing that, just throwing out that you, you can and should be. Yeah, so Red Desert uh, is the best red card in the pack. Blue cards are kind of mediocre. There's an Essence Scatter, one in a blue instant counter target creature spell, and a Lay Claim again. Best white card in the pack. There's a Dauntless Haven here, two and a white for a 2-1 flyer when it attacks untapped target creature you control. And there's also an Uncommon that's pretty sweet. Unconventional Tactics, two and a white for a sorcery. Target creature gets plus three, plus three and gains flying until end of turn. Whenever a zombie enters the battlefield under your control, you can pay white. If you do, return unconventional tactics from your graveyard to your hand. Yeah, this is a tough one for me to figure out if this were pack one, pick one, what I think the most powerful card in the pack is. Maybe it's Lay Claim as just the card with the highest ceiling to it. But I, I'm Except not... Except that's so out of place in the format, right? That's like, a, that's an awkward... With the format being as aggressive as it is, yeah. it's not quite powerful enough of a card to make me not want to play an aggressive strategy. Right. It's 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 like, yeah, this is good top end, but it feels sort of like a secret blue-green gold card, and you're cycling it like 90% of the time or something. So I, I agree. Maybe that's not right. What do you think it is? What do you think the most... If this were pack on pick one, what would you take? I would take Red Desert, I think. Because it's like just... It has, it's not, doesn't have a high ceiling, but it has a high floor, right? Yeah, it's just a very good card. Yeah. Decks that don't have deserts are noticeably worse than decks that have three to four deserts. Yeah, for sure. So that, so if it's red desert as the most, maybe as the pack one pick one, what's the card that goes best with what we have already in Gustwalker and Cartouche? For me, I think it's Dauntless Haven because I think Dauntless Haven just pairs so well with Gustwalker. Like I'm already thinking about, Pick three, I'm already thinking about what are my like best synergies going to be. I think Tactics is very, very powerful, but again, feels like a secret white, black, gold card. And I don't know if I want to push down that route just yet. So it sounds like you're on Dauntless Haven? Yeah, that's where I would land. So I took Unconventional Tactics here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you my reasoning and see if I can sell you on it here. Okay. So I like Dauntless Haven also in tandem with Gustwalker. At this point in the format, I'm viewing anything that's an X1 as a huge liability just because I think there's so many ways to punish X1s, especially if you're playing against a black deck, like Black Cartouche and Splendid Agony Mm -hmm. are really, really tough to beat. So I have Dauntless Haven moved down for that reason. And I also think Unconventional Tactics, I agree, is going to be best in a black-white deck. I think there's like a pseudo blue-white beatdown zombies deck that's got some embalm stuff to Sacred Cat coming in as a zombie. Yeah. So I think Unconventional Tactics, while not being as good in a blue-white deck, can go there. And the plus three, plus three flying pushing damage is definitely what you want to be doing with our first two cards. So if you only need like a couple triggers out of this before the game's over, right? Yeah. So I thought maybe a blue-white deck could get there on that as well. I'm into that. That You're selling me on it not being strictly a black-white card. All right, so I ended up on Tactics. You'd have been on Dauntless Aven, but again, we're staying blue-white for now. Mm-hmm. Moving on to pack one, pick four. And, you know, in your Anatomy of a Draft article, this is where you really start to see s- signals, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So best cards in the pack, I think the one that stands out immediately is If Near Deadlands. Uh, This is the black uncommon desert where you can pay one life at a black or tap for regular colorless, or you can play two black black, sacrifice a desert at sorcery speed. Make sure you remember that. I got myself in (laughs) in a (laughs) classic draft video um, to put two minus one minus one counters on target creature and opponent controls. Best blue card in the pack is Supreme Will, tune a blue instant counter target spell unless its controller pays three or look at the top four cards of your library and put one of them in your hand and the rest on the bottom 
bottom of your library in any order. Only white card in the pack is Supply Caravan, which is a clunker. Four and a white for a three five when ETBs. If you control a tapped creature, make a one one white warrior token with vigilance. Yeah, so I think if we're looking at this as pack one, pick one, if near dead lands is the best card by, as you would say, a country mile. And then if we look at what's the <laughs> is that a, is that a is that a Midwest joke? What what's happening there? That I just don't. I've never said that before meeting you. <laughs> Wait, have I said that to you? Oh yeah. Uh oh. That's what maybe that's a, a mid, maybe it is a Midwest thing. That's a Ben Werney fra- patented phrase. I I would put that in your top five phrases. Really? Uh, yikes! <laughs> I don't even know I say it that much. That's, that's concerning. All right, <laughs> onwards. <laughs> <laughs> so I think if near Deadlands is a really powerful card here, and then what would I pick? As in terms of what we've already got, like a card that goes with what we have. Well, there's no white card. So then Supreme Will, I guess, to pair with the blue cartouche. But I don't want to decide. I think there's a really, this is an important thing to, to note. Like, let's say Deadlands were a less powerful card here. Like, let's say it were closer to Supreme Will in my mind. Or, or let's say there's a Spellweaver Eternal in the pack, even. The one in a blue, two, one with prowess and a flick two. If that's in the pack here, I think a lot of people might just say, well, I've got Gus Walker cartouche, Spellweaver Eternal as a zombie, so it triggers tactics. There is a lot of, you are really narrowing your choices for the future of the draft. If by pick four, you have two white cards and two blue cards, right? You're going to, it's going to be really hard for you to move off of being white blue for not really, like you've got good reasons, right? You've got a lot of the top commons, but I think passing up on a card as powerful as If Near Deadlands here is a mistake. Yep, I agree. I took the If Near Deadlands as well. So I think that's a, like, we don't need to go a lot deeper into the draft. It was a very interesting draft. Um, but I think that's just a, a look into how we're viewing pick orders, right? We're able to have conversations about what we think the pick is based on what we know about the format. And we know that about the format because we have you know, I think the correct or close to the correct common pick orders. And we've played the format before too, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the other thing is you've got to, you know, you do all this work during spoiler season, but during that first week or two, you've got to be reevaluating those top commons and getting the right picture. And if you don't have the right top commons, you're going to lose <laughs> in the format, I think. Well, you're just going to like move into colors for incorrect reasons or not move off of colors for incorrect reasons. Like you're not going to have a good sense of I'm weighing these two cards as options and what does one provide for me versus the other? And that all starts with you understanding where the cards fit in the context of the set. Yeah. Absolutely agree 100%. All right, that was a lot to digest, but I think it was a really, really cool episode, and it was very fun to get to talk to you about. Yeah, agreed. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen, especially that brand spanking new intro music. Thank you to Channel Fireball for sponsoring this podcast. We're so, so excited. I'm just never going to get tired of saying that. So excited to be part of the CFB family. If you are heading over to CFB to uh, buy some cards or sign up for CFB Pro, please consider using the code LOL, all caps, at checkout. Let's Channel Fireball know that this partnership is worth their while. Uh, you can check us out on Twitch and Twitter. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. And we are also on Twitter under those same usernames. And you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks everybody. See you later.
Is Firebrand Archer an M21? Isn't it? Oh, that's Amonkhet Remastered. Yeah, I was like... <laughs> I, not, I haven't played that format in so long, I forgot what cards are in there. <laughs> no, it's an Amonkhet Remastered. What's an example from M21? I don't know. What what cards are in M21? 